This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, November 13th, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The prayer is given by Mark Haxo, and the speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Dear Heavenly Father, we are gathered together this morning as your sons and daughters to worship you as the creator of the universe and the savior of mankind. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus who came to this earth and lived a perfect life, was crucified for our sins, and rose from the grave, victorious over death and hell. It was through these events which took place here on this earth some 2,000 years ago that the curse of sin was broken, Satan was defeated, and the gates of heaven were open for any and for all who repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ alone as Savior and Lord. Dear Lord, we gather this morning in a nation that is deeply divided. The presidential election results only served to widen that divide. While this serves to remind us that we are only exiles here, true citizens of another kingdom, we are also aware that we are ambassadors of Christ our King here with a ministry of reconciliation. Help us, Lord, to be the salt and the light so needed in the darkness of this world. Fill us with your joy so that it overflows us in visible ways. Remind each of us this morning that no matter who serves as our president, you are still our king on the throne, and you will not share your glory with any president, or with any political party. Let none here in this church put our trust in government to accomplish that which you are calling your church to do. There are so many issues that can only be impacted by real heart change in the communities that we live in. Issues such as abortion, same-sex marriage, this whole gender confusion issue, they're at root heart issues that a secular government cannot deal with. I pray your spirit would convict each of us to recognize that it is really the calling of us, the church, to speak to these issues. Now, dear Lord, may you speak to us through your eternal word as Sam comes up to serve us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I served you and and how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? And he said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty 
will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages for you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if you found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. And Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. And he set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs that is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the stripe, and all the black and the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, you would not lay them there. And so the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. And thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. This is God's Word. Strange story. It's weird. And pretty much if you read commentators, they write, this is weird. But I will say, it's equally as or maybe less strange than our election this year. This year's presidential election uh, will go down in history as probably one of the most unexpected surprises or horrors in American politics. And as Mark said, if, if you live merely as a citizen of this country, there is much to fear about what's happened. But if you live as a citizen of another kingdom and an exile here, then there's absolutely nothing to fear. We're called to rejoice always, for the king is on his throne and all other kings are under him. That said, as I watched this election unfold um, on Tuesday night, as you, I'm sure, did as well, the reactions in the following days and the events of this week were actually even more revealing. Without question, feelings of disappointment are understandable. But feelings of devastation are ungodly. There's a big difference between being disappointed and being devastated. And when you have extreme reactions of devastation after a loss or something similar, you should ask yourself if that thing, whatever it was, was maybe too important to you. The extreme reactions of people, whether it came in the form of a Facebook rant or an actual public demonstration, reveal beliefs. They reveal the guiding truths that governs one's view of the world, their basis for meaning, their basis for security, their basis for ultimate hope. In other words, our belief systems, and I mean everyone's, our belief systems determine our reactions, especially in difficult circumstances. What you believe is going to govern and even shape and dictate what you do. See, followers of Jesus are supposed to be governed by the truth of God's Word. 
But unfortunately, most or many, I will say so-called Christians, do not have a worldview that's shaped by Scripture anymore. They're more governed by the world and their flesh than they are by the Word. This isn't a new thing. But you can begin to see that when difficult things happen, how we respond to those things reveals what we really believe. Even if it's just attitudes that are coming out. Jacob struggles with the same thing. This has been going on for thousands of years. His father struggled with it. And his father struggled with it. When life becomes difficult, however form that takes, we have to decide how we're going to respond to that difficulty. And our response reveals what we really believe. And the question for Jacob, the same question for us, is will will Jacob believe God's promises? Or will he be governed by what he sees and what he feels and what he is experiencing in this difficult moment? See, Jacob, if you recall, and if you haven't been with us and we've been going through Genesis, just going through each chapter, we're more than halfway there. We're getting there, I promise. But Jacob's life is to be governed by really two sets of promises that he received from the Lord. And these truths are supposed to govern what he sees and what he feels and and what he even experiences as opposed to the other. Being governed by your experiences or governed by your feelings or governed by what you see. In Genesis 28, these promises were spoken to Jacob as he slept. The Lord came to him in a dream and he spoke to him at this place called Bethel. And the first promises God made to Jacob were the same promises He made to his grandfather Abraham. And those promises were, I'm going to give you lots of kids, I'm going to make you a great nation, and all of the world is going to be blessed by your family. He was told these things. At this point, he has no children, he has no wife, he has no money, he has nothing. He's by himself laying on a rock. But God says, uh, the same promises. So the set of promises I gave to your father and I gave to his father, I'm giving to you. That's set one. But then God makes another set of promises to Jacob. A second set. As he's about to leave the land of Canaan, right? He's on the edge of the land of Canaan. He's on the edge of, of the, what we'll call the promised land. He's leaving it, going east. And the second set of promises God says is this, I will be with you. I will protect and provide for you wherever you go, and I will bring you back. So these are truths spoken from the mouth of God. You're going to have a big family. I'm going to give you this land. The world's going to be blessed by it. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect and provide for you, and I will bring you back. You'll notice God doesn't promise Jacob long life. He doesn't promise financial prosperity. 
He doesn't promise ease or comfort. He essentially promises himself. These are the beliefs, these promises, these truths that are supposed to govern Jacob's time when he is away from the land of Canaan. When circumstances change, when when things look like they're not unfolding the way that I would predict them to, he's supposed to hold on to these promises and these truths no matter what. This is what is true. It doesn't look like it. Looks like things are getting much more chaotic. Things are getting really difficult. Things are getting painful. Things are unfair. Things are wrong. But God has said this. But God has said this. These promises were given in order to give him strength when he feels weak, joy when he feels despairing, hope when he feels hopeless. These promises were given to stop him or hinder him from wanting to sin when trials get too difficult to bear and he wants to go his own way. Jacob has endured many trials since he arrived in his mother's hometown of Padan Aram. After seven years of hard labor, he's tricked into marrying the wrong woman. Seven years. He agrees to work another seven years to marry the woman that he loves deeply. And guided by these promises, I believe, guided by the truths that God had told him, Jacob endures tremendous abuse and exploitation from his uncle. And we could say, well, he deserved it, right? Jacob is not a good dude. And neither is Laban. But that question is, how does Jacob endure this? And I believe he's holding on to these promises. But after 14 years, 14 years of pain, 14 years of hard labor, 14, 14 years of being exploited without any kind of wage, you think he might be a little bit bitter? Maybe a little forgetful of what God promised. Maybe a little doubting of God's promises. Well, in Genesis um, 31, so if you turn to the next chapter, in verse 10, I believe Jacob recounts another dream that he has. And I believe that this dream that he has actually occurs before the events that we read today. He's telling or retelling a story uh, to his two wives. Here's what he says in beginning in verse 10. He says, In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. He said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped and spotted and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel. Remember, that's the first place where he had the dream. First place where God had given him promises. Like, I'm that same God. I'm the God of Bethel that spoke to you back then. Where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Remember that, Jacob? You remember the things I said, Jacob? Remember the things you said, Jacob, based off of what I said, Jacob? He says, now arise and go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. 
So I believe in the midst of these 14 years, or shortly after the 14 years, maybe into the 15th, maybe into the 16th, who knows, God comes to him and says, it's time to go. I've seen what Laban's been doing to you. And he gives him the strange vision about spotted, spotted and speckled sheep and goats. And so at the beginning of chapter 30, or verse 25, where I started today, we see Jacob obeys God. All right, time to go. And he approaches his uncle and he says, I'd like to leave. Why is he doing that? Because God told him it's time to leave. So he's being obedient. In truth, it'll be another six years of labor before he leaves. Six years of more labor for an abusive father-in-law. And throughout those six years, as it was the first 14, even though he is probably very tempted to run, very tempted to fight and to demand his own way, we see for these six years he decides to do neither and he decides to trust God and believe His promises. Even though he can't see them working out the way he thought they would. The first way he trusts the Lord is he doesn't run. What do I mean by that? Well, after working for 14 years without a paycheck, Jacob asks his uncle if he can leave. Laban says, I'd like you to stay. I've learned through divination, so it shows you where Laban's at. He's a full-on pagan. I've learned that the Lord is using you to bless me, Jacob. So I'd like you to stay. And Laban says, I will pay you if you will continue to pasture my sheep. I haven't paid you yet, but if you will continue to work for me, I will pay you. And so Jacob starts going, reminding him how hard he's worked for him. You remember how hard I worked for you, Laban? I've worked for you these 14 years. And in that time, Laban, you realize that when I got here, you had nothing. You had very little. And I have made you wealthy through my work, but clearly through the blessing of the Lord. And now I have a huge family to provide for. In many ways, I think he might be making a case like, Laban, you can't afford me, dude. I got... Eleven sons and a daughter, two wives, servants. I'm expensive. But Laban's like, name your wages. Name your wages, and I'll give it to you. Name your price. Now, Jacob's a grown man. He's not a kid. He's paid his dues, and guess what? He doesn't need to stay. Few would blame Jacob for leaving, and most would question his decision to stay, regardless of how much Laban said he would pay him. Laban is a bad dude. He has cheated him and he has abused him for 14 years. He has used Jacob to become wealthy while robbing Jacob, really, of his dignity to be master of his own household. More than that, remember, Jacob has something waiting for him back home. A big old inheritance. 
So when he comes home, he already has the birthright. He'll be in charge. He has the blessing. He'll have money. Why not just get out of there? Why not just run? At this point, he is a 40-plus-year-old man with lots of kids, no job, no property, no home. Why would anyone choose to stay in a situation that is so hard and so unfair? See, when things get difficult, most of us are tempted to run. We go, staying here does not make sense on paper in any way. And that over there looks way better on paper. In the midst of a long 14-year difficult trial, it's even more tempting to escape into something that looks definitely more comfortable and more prosperous, or at the very least, less oppressive. But Jacob refuses to run. He's not guided by the promise of comfort, but he is guided by the promise of God to be with him in his discomfort. Catch that? He is not guided by the promise, perhaps false promise, of comfort by running as much as he is guided and governed by the promises of God to be with him in his discomfort. And even though Jacob didn't run physically for another long six years, you got to wonder if he maybe was tempted to run mentally. Right? To, to stay but not be present. But that's not what he commits to doing. See, some of us like stay, but we're really not here. Oh, fine, Lord, I'll stick in the trial and you just passively sit there and do nothing. But Jacob doesn't simply refuse to run. He commits to actually working just as hard, if not harder, than he did. See, trusting in God and in His promises means not running, but it also means not checking out or fleeing to Canada when things get difficult. Right? Even mentally. That ain't my president. Right? Which, objectively, you stand back and go, I get it. I get it. It's hard. But the easy way is to run, if not physically, mentally. Jacob doesn't. He stays. When everything that you want to measure goes, dude, get out. Now's your chance. God said go. He stays. He stays. But he does more than that, which is crazy. Not only does he stay, and not only does he work, he doesn't demand his way. See, Jacob decides to stay, but the decision to stay sometimes can be misunderstood as a decision to stay and fight. See, many refuse to run because well, you owe me a ton. I ain't going anywhere until you own up to what I have earned. So, here's what I want. After 14 years, you have cheated me. You have robbed me. You owe me. Oh, I ain't going anywhere. You're right. Let me tell you what my wage is going to be. And it's expensive, and you're going to pay it. In other words, many of us agree to stay 
and endure or serve or even work if we feel assured that we will be compensated appropriately. I will stay and I will work if I know I'm going to get this benefit. Because I'm not getting that benefit, it ain't worth it to me. In other words, if I can guarantee I will prosper, then I will remain in this really hard circumstance that feels very unfair, but I know there's a payoff. But Jacob's not driven by prosperity. Jacob's response to Laban's request to name your wages is very surprising. I mean, you, you half expect him to lay out a very specific wage to do a very specific job, and presume it's going to be a very big salary to justify a very big job description. But Jacob doesn't demand what he probably could. He doesn't stay in the trial and trust the Lord because he's guaranteed a particular outcome. In fact, Jacob's response is, you shall not give me anything. It's not nothing shall be given to me. It's that you, Laban, will not give me anything. I don't want anything from you, Laban. Jacob agrees to work for Laban if you'll pay him in sheep and goats. And he gives this very strange scenario. Specifically, he requests that his wage be the striped, spotted, and speckled lambs and the goats in addition to the black sheep. Give me the black sheep. And all of these requests represent a very small minority of the flocks. He's asking for the, the smallest amount that would probably be there. It's the minority part. More than that, and commentators disagree about this fact, it's difficult to understand uh, the nuances of the language that's going on here. But I think as much as it looks like you know, this idea of like, well, he's going to go through the flocks and just pick the speckled and spotted, I actually think Jacob offers something much less than that. Jacob asked that he'd be paid, I believe, from the offspring of the existing flocks. Not for what Laban already had. Now on the surface, Jacob places himself either way in a distinctively disadvantaged position. He placed his, himself into the spot where he's going to have to depend upon God. He doesn't take the path to go, okay, here's what I'll do. You give me half your sheep. Here's what I'll do. I'll take all of this kind. He knows the flocks very well. He could, he could set himself up very easily. But he decides to take less. He decides to put himself in this place where God's going to have to show up and I'll know anything I get will be from him because the situation has gone from bad to worse. On purpose. He places himself to be dependent on God and honestly, we arrange our lives in such a way, especially in difficult trials, so as to avoid that situation. I don't want to be in a place where I have to depend upon God. I want to be in a place where I can depend upon the paycheck that I know is coming, the people that I know I can you know, put faith in, the situations I can control. I dare not step into a place where God actually has to show up and show me that I have no control at all. 
Jacob basically says, look, I'm not going to demand my own way. And this is the place of trust, right? I'm not going to demand my own way or fight for what I believe I deserve. On the contrary, I'm going to be at peace with taking less, even though I have already been forced to take less unfairly. Even though I've already lost much in this trial, I am going to so trust God's promises that I'll be willing to lose more. Oh, that's, that's, that's too convicting. We never place ourselves in those positions. i, I got to put myself in a place where I'm not going to lose anything else. That's not what Jacob does. And I believe it's because he trusts what God has said. He's choosing to believe that God will provide for him as he said. He will protect him as he said. So much so that he will surrender control to have to force his way. So trusting the Lord means not fighting for your way. You may not run, right? Some of us like, well, I'm just going to run. Some of us stay and we fight. And trust is about doing neither one. I believe trusting the Lord is about staying in that courageous in-between and receiving whatever the Lord is going to give you. Trusting the Lord in a trial means not running and not fighting, but waiting on the Lord. And the question is, are you willing, I mean, truly, are, are you willing to receive what the Lord is going to give you? See, if you, this is going to be a hard one, ready? This is going to be a gut check. Now, remember, I've, I get gut checks all week. So, here you go. Belief dictates response. If you believe that God is sovereign, what does that mean? He can do whatever He wants. He is all-powerful. Nothing can hinder His ability to unfold the plan as He sees fit. If you really believe God is sovereign, and you believe God is a Father. So a Heavenly Father who always gives you His best. If you believe those two truths, in other words, He can't be stopped from giving you what He believes is best, and He's a loving Father, so He'll always give you His best. Nothing can hinder that, not even you. If you believe those two things, then you will be ready to receive whatever the Lord gives and you'll be ready to rejoice with whatever He withholds. And you'll be ready to release whatever He takes away. Oh, that's too hard, right? But it's about what you really believe. It's about who you believe God is. Jacob, I believe, is trusting God in faith based on a dream from the words that he said. But we'll see that this doesn't mean Jacob is just passively trusting. I'm just going to let go and let God. Just do it, God, do it. Laban agrees to Jacob's ridiculous terms, right? It's like, good! Exclamation point. That's a fantastic deal. And in order to make it, it seems like a greater advantage. And this is where it's like, did he ask for this? What? He takes all the things that Jacob asked for and he takes them from the flock and he moves it several miles away. 
So everything that's left in the flock that Jacob will pasture is the very things he did not ask for. So he begins to shepherd the flock. He doesn't complain, which I think is very noteworthy. Can you imagine him showing up at the flock the next day? What? What did you do? That's not the deal. It doesn't do that. There's a level of trust there because things got worse. Begins to shepherd the flock. And then he takes these branches. What the snarf is going on with these branches? And I, care, I guarantee you, Google this. What snarf is going on with these branches? Are you look for it? Uh, good luck. There's like 17,000 different views of it, so I'll give you a few. I need to give you my two cents. But basically what he does, right, they, they, they go to drink water, and that's where they, they breed, I guess. They get thirsty, and then they get thirsty, you know? So like they, they're going to breed. So as they're breeding... He takes these sticks and he makes them all striped and he, as the strong ones come in, he's like, puts these sticks in front of them so they're looking at him when they're doing the deed, right? That's exactly what's going on. You're really like, really? Like, that's in the Bible, right? So it's, it's strange. And so, some people go, well, you know, you see Laban's like all into like astrology and stuff and it's like, I see through divination that you are blah, blah, blah. So maybe Jacob's into magic too. Like, maybe Jacob's doing something really like, you know, some magical thing that he thinks is going to work. Maybe. Some people think it's actually quite scientific. There's actually some science that having shepherded sheep for 14 years, he's seen this work out before, and he understands that like, this actually works. Others, like John Calvin, believe that God actually commanded him. So that dream that in verse 31, that, or chapter 31, I told you, like, he saw this spotted and speckled thing that, and he's like, okay, God told him to put sticks down. And that's how he understood that. I don't know. I don't know. But here's what I feel like. This is where I think pastors and theologians get, go, go bad. They go, well, I think it's this. Here, here's where I think it is. I think, if nothing else, we can see that Jacob is doing something. He's doing his part. Whether it's cultural, traditional, whether it's scientific, I don't think it's as much control as we might assume. But in many ways, guess what? He's making his plans. He's implementing some kind of strategies, but he's ultimately committing those to the Lord. Because the Lord is the one who's in control of sheep or people get pregnant and have babies. No sticks and stones are going to help that. He didn't run. He didn't fight. But he didn't stay there and do nothing. He worked hard, but he also worked smart. Ready to receive whatever the Lord was going to give him. But he did his part as he waited to receive that. God's promises were not an excuse to be unfaithful in the same way that God's sovereignty is not an excuse to go, well, I don't have to do anything because God's just in control and He'll just make blah, blah, blah. Wrong. God's sovereignty gives you confidence that what you do isn't meaningless. That it's all governed by His control, that He will bless it. Even if it takes a different form than what you deem good in your eyes. 
Trusting means receiving what the Lord is ready to give. And as you're waiting to receive that, you work hard and you work smart. God's grace is not the antithesis of work, it's the inspiration for it. Jacob focused on faithfulness. What he could do, but he trusted God with fruitfulness. And it's amazing how many people are waiting for change in their situation. I wish my marriage would change. I wish my relationship with so-and-so would change. I wish my uh, addiction to this would change. But they're unwilling to do anything that would be deemed faithful. To faithfully be in God's Word. To faithfully commune with God's people. To faithfully pray about this situation that won't change. Why would the situation change? Yes, God can definitely change a situation without you. But your faithfulness to do your part will, in time, I believe, bear fruit because they're often the means by which God gives for that fruit to be appear. In the end, we see after six years of focusing on faithfulness, the solid-colored sheep and the solid-colored goats give birth to speckled and spotted and all kinds of striped animals more than they do anything else. And Jacob prospers and ends up with a very large flock and great wealth. After many years, six-ish, as you read the beginning of verse 31, Laban, who was all excited to have Jacob with him, is now like, I don't like you anymore. You're such a blessing. Now you're a curse. It's interesting when you trust the Lord in a trial, instead of trying to force your way out of it, how God just kind of blows open the door. And that's what's happening. Instead of forcing his way out when Laban at first said, I think you should stay. I ain't staying. You're terrible to work for. He waited, and he waited, and now Laban's like, I I want you out of here. Even though Jacob had the opportunity to leave six years ago, it's now clear that it's time. Jacob almost ran, probably from the trial when he was completely impoverished because he could run home to inheritance, but because he waited and trusted God, he didn't run, and he didn't force his own way, and God provided a way of escape that was infinitely more prosperous than he could have imagined. So he calls both his wives together, tells them about his plan to leave, and they're actually like all on board, like, that's right. Dad's being a jerk. Let's get out of here. And listening to these words, right, I read you the dream. This is where he starts to tell them about the dream he had and, and how this all happened, because they're like, I can't believe, like, all these flocks. What's going on? He's like, look, I had this dream. This is why it happened. And then he tells them this in Genesis 31. I believe it's in verse 4. It says, Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and he said to them, "See, I see your father. He has no regard for me with favors he did before. Your dad hates me now. Notice what he says. And I want your mind to go back to what God said in Bethel. And notice what Jacob says here. Even though your dad has no favor for me, he says, but God, the God of my father has been with me. 
There's promise number one. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But, promise number two, God did not permit him to harm me. What's been guiding Jacob this whole time? Verse 8, he says, If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. If he said, The stripe shall be your wages, then all the flock bore stripe. It just happened. The Lord did this. Verse 9, Thus God has taken away the livestock from your father and given them to me. What do you hear Jacob saying? God was doing this. And 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 God protected me here. And God provided for me here. And God was with me here. In the midst of all this difficulty, God has been in here. The promises that God made to Jacob are the same promises that He has made to us. And they're really quite simple. He's promised to make us a people. He's promised to, to make, you know, bring us, if you will, into a place. And He's promised to be with us if we would just trust Him. And you can think about Israel reading this. Or Israel reading the story as they're going through the wilderness. God had, had given them promises. They're on their way to the same land that Jacob will soon be on his way back to. So think about as they're, they're hearing this. God had, had promised to be with them. He had given them more than promises, actually. As he was leading back to the land, Israel was led by a pillar of fire and a cloud. And eventually they had the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt to be with them in the center of their camp. And Israel would have read the story of Jacob when they were wandering the wilderness and, and again as they were about to enter the promised land and, and they were thinking with this land full of Canaanites and this place that they weren't a, a battle-hardened army and reminding themselves of the promises that had been made to Jacob, God is with us. God will not permit us harm. God will take away what the enemy has and He will give it to us. He will be with us. Do you believe those promises are for you? And I know many of us here are very tempted to go into a place to go, you don't know my situation. You don't know how hard it is right now to be in the situation I'm in. You don't know how easy and tempting it is for me to run. You know how hard I want to fight. You don't know, and I don't. But there is one who does. His name's Jesus. We have a very lofty view of the kind of life Jesus lived. But when the Bible tells us that he was, we have a high priest who can sympathize and empathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way we ever were, yet without sin. That he experienced trials, yet without sin. We want to say, no one's experienced that. You don't get it. Jesus did. You know, he was the one who, as I said, was faced with every possible temptation and trial you can suffer. And he was tempted from Satan himself, which I would say it's unlikely any of us have had that joy. He was called a glutton. He was called a drunk. He was called a heretic. He was called a faker. He was called a sinner. He was falsely accused. He was physically abused. He was rejected by his own family and those he loved. He was mocked by those he helped, abandoned by those he taught, and killed by those he was called to honor. 
I may not know how difficult your circumstance is, but Jesus does, and he was the one who refused to run in the midst of how difficult it was, and he refused to fight, and he stayed there and entrusted himself to the Father. And so Jesus is the one who can say, I'm with you. Jesus is the one who can say that as we go through this difficult time, I will keep you from harm. Jesus is the one who says, don't worry, I'm bringing you home. Your beliefs about Jesus, our Lord, are going to determine your responses to difficult circumstances or events. And how might you respond differently if you believed that God was with you and God was protecting you and God was walking with you to prosper you in all of your trials? Prosper? You really believe that? Sometimes I don't. That's why I read the Bible a lot. To remind myself of what is true. And to let the Word shape what I'm experiencing, what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, and not my flesh. What if you believe this verse as I close in Jeremiah 29, written to a group of exiles who were experiencing difficult life away from home, wanting to be back. And God said this to them through the prophet Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Just take that. Just that verse in the midst of your trial where you want to run or you want to fight anything but just trust and sit there in the courageous in between and work hard. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile into His presence. That's the goal, people. And so I pray that you will let God's promises govern your responses. I pray you will run less, you will fight less, and you will trust more. We take communion every Sunday, and this is your chance to draw near to God. This is your chance to be reminded about what is true Perhaps you've been governed by your feelings and your fears, governed by what you think and what you can figure out, governed by the experiences, governed by your flesh, governed by the world. This is a chance to come and be governed by the truth that there is a Savior who was sent by a Creator to redeem you in this broken world and to gather us together as a people so that He can live with us and dwell with us and we can enjoy His presence. This table is for those who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, who believe that He died the death you deserve for your sin, but rose from the dead to give you new life, and a life that He lived perfectly that you never could have. Those are the truths that we hold tightly to, especially when it's tempting to forget or disbelieve them. Let's pray.